It was a rare thing that happened a few days just before Christmas. It was shortly after sunset in the southwest sky and the planets of Jupiter and Saturn were in a unique orbital alignment. And to the naked eye, it appeared as if Jupiter and Saturn had converged into one larger celestial body, shining like an unusually bright star. Astronomers call this phenomenon a great convergence. And although convergences are not always that remarkable, the great convergence of 2020 was actually quite rare. The last time this same alignment could be seen by the human eye was back uh, in the year 1226, almost 800 years ago. So maybe I guess it's safe to say that the great convergence of 2020 was a true bright light in the news this past winter. <laughs> At the very least, it was a welcome distraction as we were heading in to Christmas in a very isolated way that we were in the midst of our global pandemic. And it certainly was great news for the telescope industry. According to Sky and Telescope magazine, interest in the Great Convergence led to an unprecedented increase in telescope sales, upwards of 60 to 100 percent. Now, in the early 17th century, the astronomer and mathematician Johann Kepler, who is, by the way, also known to be a devout Lutheran, <laughs> proposed that the star of Bethlehem, which guided the wise men on their journey to see the Christ child, was a conjunction similar to the one that was viewable just a couple of weeks ago. Though it was likely something that would have involved a trio of planets, in a different sort of alignment and much more rare in occurrence. You know, stargazers and astronomers throughout the millennia have been searching the heavens to try to gain insight into the workings of the universe and perhaps to catch a glimpse of the mind of God. And as one contemporary astronomer puts it, to gaze into space is to embark upon a spiritual quest, an experience of awe and wonder. And as I was reflecting on that, I could just imagine that the wise men in today's scripture story, epiphany story, could have been sharing a similar sentiment. Now, we don't know for sure what type of celestial phenomenon uh, is responsible for the guiding star of Bethlehem. But given the year we've been through, perhaps this attention on convergences and brilliant stars so close to Christmas was just the spark we needed for some spiritual imagination, inviting us to reflect on this story in a fresh, with a fresh sense of wonder. The Feast of Epiphany, which comes up on January 6th, Wednesday of this week, marks the 12th day of the Christmas season. And as our church members uh, from Latin America and Spain can teach us in their cultural traditions, it is this, El Dia de los Reyes, that is the, actually the proper time for gift giving. So if you're one of those who is really sad to see the celebrations of Christmas ending, this is great news and you still have one more chance. <laughs> Epiphany comes from the Greek word epiphaneia, which means a manifestation or a revealing. And as representatives of the Gentile world, the wise men witnessed the revealing of God's incarnate love, the Christ child, 
who has come as love and hope for all the world. The story of Epiphany is familiar to us and a very beloved story, as it's the final installment in the larger Christmas story. Yet I find it interesting um, that Matthew, not Luke, is the one telling this installment of the story, telling about the Gentiles' encounter with Christ in this, in this instance. Now, as a storyteller, Matthew is not as big on details as Luke might be. And I, I noticed, we all noticed that there are perhaps a number of specifics of the story that Matthew doesn't actually tell us, particularly as it refers to the main players in the story, the wise men or the magi. Now, Matthew does tell us that the wise men were foreigners coming from the east. And as I mentioned, they were Gentiles. They were very learned men, likely astrologers who were studying the stars. Some folks called them wisdom seekers. And although they themselves were not Jewish, the wise men were familiar with ancient prophecies, such as what we've heard in Micah 5, uh, recalled in the text, for telling of the coming of the Messiah. We know they left their homes to embark on this long journey guided by a brilliant star in search of the one whose birth fulfilled the prophecies. And we know they came bearing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But Matthew doesn't tell us, however, how many wise men there actually were, nor does Matthew mention their names or the countries they hailed from, or when they actually arrived. Yet over the centuries, our church traditions have filled in a number of these gaps. We Western Christians presume that there were three wise men based on the fact that three gifts were presented. There are those who have suggested, however, that for such a long distance journey, the wise men must have been traveling along with a much larger sized caravan. And indeed, the Eastern Orthodox tradition claims that there were 12, not three magi. Now, somewhere in the sixth century, we Western Christians gave names to the Magi. Melchior from Persia, Gaspar from India, and Balthazar of Arabia, or sometimes Ethiopia, representing diverse regions of the world. And the wise men's identification as kings was eventually linked to various scriptural references, like we heard in these, this morning's readings out of Psalm 72 and in multiple places in Isaiah. Now, personally, I find it fascinating to consider how discoveries uh, and revelations in theology and archaeology and science have contributed over the centuries to our retelling of the story of the wise men's journey to Bethlehem. Hopefully, all of this adds to our sense of wonder and connection to this story. Although none of it should overshadow the essential message that's being conveyed. Now, in a commentary by one of my favorite, uh, favorite writers, Barbara Brown Taylor, encourages us to rescue the Magi from their fixed places in the annual Christmas pageant and restore them instead to their biblical roles as key witnesses to both the threat and the promise of the Christ child. You know, the wise men arrive in Jerusalem, having missed Bethlehem by about nine miles. Who knows whether they made an error in calculation 
Or perhaps they just assumed that the child king would be born in Jerusalem, the seat of prestige and power and wealth, rather than in the humble backwater town of Bethlehem. Either way, the Magi began asking around, questioning where they might find the child who had been born king of the Jews. And when Herod hears about why the Magi has come, he becomes livid. And his anger is just evidence of how frightened he really is. We can hear his duplicitousness in the tone of the instructions that Herod gives to the wise men after he calls them into his palace court. Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I too may go and worship him. But Herod has no such intention. The birth of the Messiah threatens Herod to his very core. He's a brutal, ruthless tyrant, and everything about the news of a new king of the Jews poses a grave threat to him. Not only threatening his own position of power, but even just rumors of such a thing could bring Rome crumbling down upon him. But you know, Herod has handled revolts and uprisings before. In his mind, he knows exactly how to handle this one. See, as Matthew writes in the latter half of this chapter, Herod will devise and carry out a very sinister plan, ordering the slaughter of every baby boy in the town of Bethlehem. His brutality is what prompted the Holy Family to eventually flee to Egypt for safety. You know, the harshness of this encounter is stunning. It's bound to jolt us out of our lingering, warm, peaceful feelings left behind from Christmas Eve. This part of the story refuses to let us remain sentimental about Jesus' entry into the world. It demands that we pay attention to what we wish we could ignore. And while we rejoice over the birth of the child who brings hope and light to the world, in the shadow there is a ruthless tyrant who will stop at nothing to maintain his own sense of power and self-importance. And right here, the wise men are, standing as witnesses to both the threat and the promise that is Christ Jesus. Now, as Matthew continues the story, he tells us from their detour in Jerusalem, the wise men proceed on to Bethlehem, and the star is once again guiding their way. And when they arrive, they find the Christ child with his mother. And they are overwhelmed with joy to be in the presence of the Messiah. The wise men have come face to face with the holy child. And in this moment, they are gazing upon the light of the world. The Emmanuel, God with us. They kneel down and they worship him. And then they offer up the gifts that they have brought the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. And right here, they have had an encounter with Christ, and they are changed forever. Now, Matthew closes the story by telling us, and having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the wise men left for their own country by another road. Their lives have changed forever. There is no going back. For the old way, it was no longer adequate. They had to go home by another way. 
we've come through a Christmas season in a way that would have seemed unimaginable any other year. We have come through a year where we have faced the immense challenges of a pandemic with all its upheaval, isolation, anxiety, illness, loss, uncertainty. So much has changed in our lives and perhaps within ourselves as well. Yet along the way, Christ's love has continued to be present with us, guiding us, helping us to find our footing along a way and along a road that we couldn't have thought possible. In the midst of this unprecedented year, we have caught a glimpse of the brightness of Christ's love. And we too have been changed and we are still being changed. Our lives are not the same and nor can we go back for the old ways are no longer adequate. And so like the wise men, we will go forward by a different way as different people. And so where do we start? Well, I know probably all of us were very happy to say goodbye to this past year in the middle of the week, saying good riddance, perhaps. And as we step into this new year, my heart is drawn to a prayer practice that is deeply rooted in the Methodist tradition called a covenant renewal. And it feels like a very fitting place to start. Now, back in 1780, John Wesley wrote the original service of Covenant Renewal as a New Year's Eve watch night service. And many Methodist churches carry on with this tradition at the beginning of a new year. And within the African-American churches, the watch night is particularly strong as it also takes on an additional significance because January 1st is also the date uh, to celebrate the passage of the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, which declared an end to slavery. Now the watch night, uh, which by the way, in some places can last for hours, is a time for offering one's heartfelt testimony about what God has brought the people, their people through in the previous year. And with praise and hopeful anticipation for all that God will do in the year to come. And at the very heart of the service, is a time when believers offer a covenant prayer to God, renewing their commitment to follow as a faithful disciple for Jesus and to prepare them for service in the coming year. Now, in my own personal experience, I have found the watch night tradition to be very meaningful and enriching. And I'd like to share just a small portion of the covenant renewal prayer that is part of it. And let us pray. Loving Christ, I offer myself up to you now. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your hope and service. Amen.
You know, it can be a very powerful and humbling thing to lay lay ourselves out so humbly before Christ with a heart fully open for God's transforming love to continue the work in our lives. But it's at that point that we know, like the wise men, that we have been changed by an encounter with Christ, and there is no going back the way that we came. Yes, the season of Christmas is coming to a close this week, which means that the work of Christmas begins. And so I encourage each of us to offer up thanks for the ways that we have glimpsed the light and the love of Christ. And as those who have been changed by Christ's presence in our lives, we now are called to be bearers of peace and hope and light in our world. So I send us forth with some fitting words written by Howard Thurman, who's a minister, educator, civil rights leader, and uh, spiritual support for Dr. Martin Luther King. Thurman's poem is entitled, The Work of Christmas. When the songs of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flock, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among brothers and sisters, to make music in the heart. Amen.